My guest today is Peter Coleman, professor of psychology and education here at Columbia University and director of the International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution. He's also the author of a recent book titled The 5%, Finding Solutions to Seemingly Impossible Conflicts, and is a contributor to the, contributor to the Huffington Post. Welcome to the program, Professor. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So just to start off the interview, um, could you explain, please, what, what exactly is the field of peace and conflict studies? Sure. Uh, uh, people have, of course, studied peace and conflict probably as long as we've studied anything because conflict has been around forever. But it became a, a sort of systematic field of study probably about 75, 80 years ago. I mean, to some degree, social psychology came out of the Civil War in this country. Um, there's been a lot of research organized around understanding war, World War I, World War II. Um, but the field of conflict and peace studies really started to organize primarily after World War II, and have really tried to understand the causes of war and the consequences of war and what peace uh, could look like if it were to come, right? What are the necessary conditions for that? And it's an eclectic field. People study it from a legal perspective. They study it in political science, international affairs, um, even in more family realms, studying conflict and, and constructive processes in families and businesses and communities. Um, psychologists study it a lot. There's a division of the American Psychological Association devoted to peace and conflict studies. So it's in a very eclectic field, but it really is trying to understand human interaction and understand the basic conditions where we either work with each other for a more constructive world or we work against each other and those dynamics can escalate and become destructive. Mm -hmm. So what is your work and your interest in that field? So I was trained as a social psychologist primarily, and I was trained by a, a man named Morton Deutsch, who was an eminent professor and theoretician in uh, social psychology of conflict. Uh, and he was here at Columbia for his whole career, for most of his career. Uh, and he founded the center I direct there, which is the International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution. Uh, and, and he was trained, and I was trained in his, in his tradition as a, mostly as an experimental social psychologist. Um, and so I've studied... Uh, I tend to study problems in the field that we don't know much about. So after studying conflict processes for 75 years, we know a fair amount of how, of, you know, constructive negotiation processes and mediation processes, how to bring people together to sort of work things out, whether that's on the playground or whether it's in, in, in families or whether it's at the UN. Um, so we've studied basic processes, constructive conflict processes for a long time, but we don't know about some of the more marginal processes. So one of the things I write about in this book, the 5%, are those 5% of international conflicts that, uh, for whatever reason, just persist. They resist diplomacy, negotiation, even sort of unilateral victory of one more powerful country or nation over another. Um, and they tend to sort of endure for long periods of time. So there's, to, to some degree, a pathology in the conflict world that we don't really understand well. And what, all we know is that the tools, the mediation and diplomacy tools that we've developed don't seem to work. And in, in, in fact, there's some evidence that they seem to make things worse. So we try to stu study the things we don't understand, we don't know very much about. So that's one area we work in. Uh, we look at, at conflicts between uh, parties that have very different uh, levels of power because most of the research in conflict is looking at sort of equal power parties and how they negotiate. But when you have a high power and low power party, everything changes. 
Um, so we try to understand those dynamics, and we look at things like injustice and the role injustice plays in conflict dynamics. So that's the, the, the broad scope. We tried to s- study the basic dynamics of conflict, um, and more and more we've worked with interdisciplinary teams of people because conflict is not just a psychological phenomenon. It oftentimes have, has economic components or political components or historical components. So we start to work more and more in these eclectic teams to understand the, the phenomenon of conflict, whether it moves in a, in a constructive direction or a destructive direction, but to try to understand it um, more holistically, not just in terms of you know, its psychology alone. Mm-hmm. So how does, um, how does the academic approach to conflict what sort of components are there to the study of it that differ from the way we might, you know, use common sense to encounter conflict in our everyday life? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think um, the, the, the thing that's interesting about conflict is that we all have experiences with it, right? So we, well, we've all had it since we were young. We have internal conflict, or whether we do this or that. We have conflict with our siblings and our, you know, friends growing up. Um, so we have a lot of experience with it. Um, but it's it's not very common for us to necessarily reflect on how, how do we make these choices, what are the consequences of these choices. So, you know, I think probably because of the pathologies of war that have come out of certain conflicts like the Civil War in this country, World War One and Two, and the extraordinary damage that inflicted on, on you know, the, sort of the human species and the planet, um, and the, the increasing possibility for um, major destruction because of the sophistication of weapons. Because of that kind of threat, we've really wanted to go back and look systematically at the study of human interaction and try to understand as basically as we can what what will determine when a conflict happens, whether it moves in a, in a, in a constructive direction. In other words, you can learn, you can innovate, you can actually, um, through a conflict, uh, enhance your relationships with someone or moves in a more destructive direction, right, where it starts to escalate and it gets out of control and then people break all sorts of rules and ultimately it can lead to violence and and more extreme damage. So that's the basic question that we've studied. We've tried to understand the conditions under which conflict is either a constructive force or a destructive force. We believe that it is just a natural process of social human life. It's It's a process of learning. It's a process of developing relationships. Um, so it is just a natural thing that exists, but the fundamental question is when does it go well and when does it go poorly, and can we understand those conditions systematically as a, uh, um, and, there, and then create the conditions that change the probabilities of conflict being either destructive or constructive. Mm-hmm. In your book, um, and a little bit in your, the way you refer to it here, conflict has sort of such a broad application, and one thing that you use is a lot of examples where you use cite neighborhood feuds, interpersonal and family feuds, and you know onto like geopolitical feuds. So mm-hmm. I guess one of the assumptions is that there is some sort of commonality to even those from the interpersonal to the geopolitical. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we we are grandiose enough to believe that there are some things that are in common. Now they may look very different if it's you know between you know two partners in a relationship or between, you know, the Philippines and China, right? Um, But the dynamics, fundamentally, we believe, are very similar, right? So, you know, whether or not two people will approach a conflict in in what they call a sort of win-lose fashion, right? The only way I can get what I need in this situation is to make you lose. 
or whether they approach it by saying, well, um, there's the possibility here that you know you could get what you basically need and I could get what I need if we're creative and persistent in thinking about that, right? Those two approaches can happen in couples and families and communities um, and at the UN. So the, the, the sometimes one way to think about conflict processes is that there are fundamental components that cross levels. Again, what they look like, how complicated they can become at, the, at, at, at more macro levels, um, there are many differences, but there are also some basic commonalities, and that's really what we try to understand. So the name of the book is 5%. Yeah. Where exactly did that number come from? So there's a, there's a um, database called the Correlates of War Database, and it's a, it's a sort of 200-year-old database. They study, have looked at interstate conflicts from 1816 to I think the last analysis was about 2006. And um, what that allows us to do is, so they look at actually every interstate exchange, whether you know one country and another country are, are trading, whether there's educational exchanges, whether there's military exchanges, you know, what is the nature of the relationships? And what they've been able to do is track all of the interstate conflicts that have taken place over this 200-year period. And what they find is, you know, the good news is that approximately 95% of those conflicts are end. You know, they end in a reasonable amount of time. It sort of takes less than 20 years for the conflicts to run their course. They're either ended through diplomacy or they're ended through military victory or some, for some reason they seem to go away, right? But there is a small percent, depending on how you count it, somewhere between 5 and 8% that don't, that persist on average about 36 years, that... Um, uh, wreak all kinds of misery um, and have extreme um, economic costs. Um, and the irony is that small percentage, that 5%, um, accounts for about half of the wars that we've seen since 1816, um, including the two world wars. So these kinds of long-term kind of negative dynamics that states get into can cause the most harm, in, uh, destabilize you know, certainly the states, but also the regions, um, and really draw the attention of the international community. So Israel-Palestine is an example of that because it's a conflict that's existed somewhere between 100 years and 50 years, depending on how you count where it began. And it's uh, attracted so much attention, so much in the way of resources and concern, and really inflicted so much misery on uh, the communities there as well as the diaspora around the world that it, 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 even though it's one conflict out of you know, many potential conflicts, it, it has really drawn us in in a way that we don't understand. And, it, um, and, and one of the key things about these is that they're, resistance, they're resistant to good faith attempts to solve them. So one of the ways you really understand whether a conflict falls into one of these 5% are you, is you look at the history and you see that there have been many attempts by one side or both sides or the international community to come in and make things better and to talk things out or work things out and they've come close to peace processes or they've actually reached agreements but those agreements quickly uh, fail, and then conflict and violence escalates again. So, um, so that's where the term 5% comes from. Mm -hmm. So how you've spoken a bit about it here, yeah. and it's a big topic here uh, in your book. What, what are some of these destructive processes? What is this sort of um, this path to intractability? Sure. Um, what is it? look like? What, how would you notice it? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. So 
Um, when I first got interested in this area, which was probably in the late 90s, I started to read as widely as I can on that question. You know, what, what is the, you know, when we try to understand these things, basically we try to say, well, what is the essence here? Is there one essence that can explain these problems? And so I read widely in different literatures and different disciplines to try to understand how people thought about that. And the good news is that I, I think I identified the essence. The bad news is there were about 57 of them. It really depends on who you read, what case they were talking about, um, and really what their sort of disciplinary orientation. So people would say, well, it's really about trauma. You know, something happened 600 years ago. It traumatized these peoples or this community, and that's never been adequately dealt with. So politi political leaders can come in and easily tap into that and make people angry and have ethnic groups attack each other, right? Or people will say, well, it's just too complicated. There's so many things happening here, we can never really know how to solve it. Or other people would say, it's very simple. It really comes down to that conflict is no longer about things. It's really about identity, that you've identified yourself as, you know, I'm Palestinian and by def definition not Israeli. And that kind of sort of zero-sum identification becomes so important to people and groups that they sort of develop an investment in the conflict. So there were all these different types of explanations, all of which are valid and make sense, um, certainly in particular conflicts. But what we started to think was that it was less about any one root cause. So typically what you do in most conflict resolution scenarios is you try to understand what is the root cause here. Is there one, two, three issues that really are driving this that could be addressed and therefore rectify the problem? And what we think in these situations, in these 5%, it's less about the root cause and it's more about the fact that there is this constellation of many different causes that somehow collapse and start to feed each other in this complex way so that you can interrupt or, or resolve one, two, three, four of them, but there are always others that sort of bring the conflict back into its dynamic, right, into a sort of more destructive dynamic. And so we, we started to study these kinds of things less from a psychological or historical perspective and really start to understand them as, as complex systems, right, that collapse onto themselves and really start to become unresponsive to any kind of external intervention. So whether it's the international community coming in, whether it's the parties saying, okay, we've had enough, that doesn't seem to be enough to make a difference to end the conflict. There still are these other forces that sort of drag it back into the conflict. So we've been studying them as, these, as, a, as a sort of dynamic of complex systems that other people have used that type of metaphor and that type of approach to study different um, areas of science to study, for example, uh, the, the mutation from healthy cells to cancerous cells, right? That there's a very specific kind of nonlinear change that happens when healthy cells move into cancerous cells. And, it's, uh, and so they, they use the same kind of thinking to understand that kind of transition and how they become stable in this kind of pathological condition and how do you change that. So we've been using uh, some of the same metaphors and ideas and methods to study these conflicts uh, as complex systems that collapse and become unresponsive to change. So I, I know this might just get sort of to the to the root of it, I get in some ways, but sure. in looking at conflict as a system as yeah. opposed to conflict as an event, yeah. how would you fix such a complex system? Where would where would the resolution be? Like, how can you play a role yeah. in such a confluence of forces? Yeah, well, it's a great question. Um, so one of the things that we have to change is really how we think and talk about these things. Um, when you have a complex system that's multiply determined and is kind of evolving on its own, um, you can't fix it. 
right? You can't go in and sort of intervene in a very kind of du- direct way uh, and have the kind of effect you want, you'd, you'd hope. What's ironic about these things is when you have a you know what we call a tightly coupled complex system with a lot of different problems feeding each other, that if you go in and do a big intervention, you can either have no effect whatsoever, you can have the opposite effect of what you'd hope to achieve, you could perhaps see a little bit of an, of an effect that you anticipated, um, or you may see nothing happen, but then years later, something emerges, right? So they operate um, with, a, with a different kind of logic. It doesn't ha- it, uh, so, so thinking about them in terms of intervention and cause and effect is, is part of the problem, we think, because again, you go in, you try to mediate these things, you raise people's hopes and expectations, it fails, and that feeds their sense of desperation and hopelessness, and that contributes to the intractability, right? So, so what we argue is that you really have to understand these things differently. So let me give you an example. One of the most interesting things that we find from the study of the Correlates of War database is that these kinds of conflicts, these 5% of conflicts that last you know, 40 years, 100 years, um, about 95% of them start within 10 years of what they call a major political shock, right? So, for example, 10 years before the Arab Spring was 9-11 and the American incursion in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? So 9-11 and the American incursions were, were major political shocks to the Arab-speaking world, right? Now, that didn't, doesn't mean that 9-11 and, and the you know, U.S. troops caused the Arab Spring, but it means that something big happened and really destabilized the system so that about 10 years later, you see regimes that had been basically stable and autocratic for 40, 50 years overthrown by young people in the streets tweeting, right? Mm-hmm. So, of course, a lot of different things contributed to that, but what is interesting is that about it was about 10 years before that that there was a huge shock to the system which allowed that kind of change. So what that means is that, you know, you can't say X caused Y, but you can say that some kind of major destabilizing factor happened, and then over time the system moved in a very different direction, right? So that's how we have to start to think about these things. It's, it's, it's A, recognizing when there are major instabilities that occur, ruptures or political shocks that occur, and recognizing that actually what that means is that the time is ripe to perhaps start to, start to shift the system, start to guide the barge in a different direction, right? Um, and you may not see effects for a while. It may take four, five, 10 years. But ultimately, you can see them move into a more constructive place. I mean, again, what we don't know about the Arab Spring is what the outcomes will be. Will Egypt move into a more democratic, pluralistic, constructive society? Or will it move back into a more, even more autocratic society? It's hard to tell. All we know is that change is happening, and it can move back. It can move forward. It can move into a worse situation. You know, big change will occur. We just don't know what direction. So what that means is that we have to sort of understand the long-term effects of these kinds of cha- uh, dynamics and change. And when, when they're occurring, recognize that the best we can do is what we call change the probabilities. So if you have a system that's experiencing a major shock, what you can do is recognize that there are certain things that you can do that over time might increase the probabilities that people will engage more constructively and negotiate and try to build institutions that are mutually supportive. And you can try to decrease the probabilities 
that ethnic groups will go at each other violently, and you know you can put in early warning systems and those types of things. And what that does is it, cha- it, it changes the odds that over the next 10, 12 years, a system will move in a more constructive versus a more destructive uh, direction, right? So again, it really requires that we get our head around how change happens, particularly in these complex systems, and not think about, well, if you go in and do X, you'll see Y, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess that question is almost the exact problem, represents the exact problem in the thinking of past conflict resolution studies as opposed to your new approach. Well, your, the well, question is, is reflective of, of really our approach to science for 400 years, right? We try to understand, you know, we take a problem, we try to break it down and say, you know, what are the causal mechanisms that have X cause Y? And that's really how we've thought about this. And, and that type of science and that type of thinking has, has made uh, has moved us very far, right? We've made great progress. But what it doesn't tell us is, well, what happens when a hundred of those things are causing each other together, right? So we know pieces, we understand pieces of the puzzle, but we don't understand how the puzzle comes together and how it evolves over time. And so it requires us to sort of put that, un- that simple understanding back in context and to understand how these forces evolve over time and end up in more stable or unstable places. So with complex systems like a family, so you have a family with, a, with an addict, right? In that system, because there are so many people and, and, and events that are occurring, you can never say that, well, if we do X, we'll see Y. You can't predict outcomes because it's impossible. There are too many things that can happen. But what you can do is if you observe the family over time, you can start to see that there are some pretty stable patterns that they fall into. So they may fall into dynamics that are more healthy and constructive where they talk about things and work things out and move in a, in a better direction, or they may fall into really in, into crises and crises patterns and get really stuck in those patterns. So you can never sh- tell in the short term what will happen, but if you track them over a year or two years, you can start to say, all right, there are three strong patterns this family falls into, and if you change these conditions, the probabilities will be it's much more likely that they'll move into this more functional pattern, right? So, yes, it's a, it's a different way of thinking about things, um, but it's more and more common in science, in, 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 in really all areas of science, primarily in physics and chemistry and biology, but more and more in the social sciences. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, you make a few references to this holistic pattern of thinking as a, sort of informed by Taoism. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there a sort of a personal interest in Taoism for you or...? Well, uh, you know, I find the, um, uh, the embracing of contradiction, right, fascinating. And I think really, uh, you know, it, I think it is really a sort of an, an essence of how the world evolves. And I think that's one of the things that they've recognized is that oftentimes when, when, when we in the West split off, you know, who's right and who's wrong, the left is right and the right is wrong or, the, you know, prog- or progressives are wrong and the conservatives are right, you know, we, we fail to recognize that there's actually valid truths on both sides, right? And that if you recognize, well, you know, the conservatives are really interested in tradition and history and stability, and the progressives are much more interested in, in change and protection of minorities, and, you know, and, and the truth is good societies are able to do both functionally, right? So you, if you can embrace that kind of contra- contradiction and not s- oversimplify it and split it off, then you, you can have a much more functional and healthy society, right? 
Um, but we have a hard time doing that in the West. We have to st we have to choose. You know, one side has to be right, one side has to be wrong. And as you can see in the kind of political discourse, our country has become more and more sort of oversimplified and polarized on that dimension. We're right now the, the there was just a recent study that was published in the Harvard Business Review that the Congress um, and Senate in, in the United States is more polarized today than it has been since 1879. So since the end of the, you know, since coming out of the Civil War in this country, we are now today more polarized. And that's, to some degree, you know, it's due to a lot of factors, but one of the things it's due to is that we're not particularly comfortable with contradiction, not comfortable with tolerating the fact that both sides can be true and there may be a, a middle way to understand it that um, is more accurate and more functional. So we do tend to split off. So yeah, I think philosophically, um, Taoism and the, the em embracing of contradiction and, and understanding change in that context resonates with me. Mm -hmm. So one of those sort of embracing of contradictions that you talk about is how conflicts you know, they are as simple as they sound, and yet they are extremely complex. Yeah. So how, how would you describe the simplicity and the complexity of these 5% of, con of intractable conflicts? Sure. Well, so on one level, they're immensely complex, right? So if you take Israel-Palestine, you know, you can list 100 different factors that have contributed contributed to their intractability today or over the past 50 years. There are a variety of different things that you can, you know, um, with a high degree of certainty say, you know, this act really contributed to the escalation and perpetuation of the conflict. But if you, if you try to understand that at a much more fundamental level, um, so if you take the idea of these, you know, hundred different things that are contributing to its intractability and say, well, on some abstract level, some basic level, What's really happening is that all of these different identities and peoples and issues over the years and leaders who are responsible, that all of these different things essentially collapse into a very simple understanding of it's, it's either the Israelis' fault and the Palestinians are victims of their oppression, or it's the Palestinians' fault and terrorism and the Israelis are victims of their terrorism, right? And you can, it, it, and it, it becomes in your mind very simple. You know, there, there's a basic human process or human need to understand things as simply as possible. We, if we're presented with a lot of complexity in an image or complexity in a new situation, we're sort of hardwired to try to make it more coherent, to make it more simple, to try to understand it. Otherwise, life becomes very chaotic and unpredictable, right? And it makes us anxious. So there is a natural healthy tendency for us to try to simplify things that are either complicated or th certainly things that are threatening. And in conflict, that that's, you know, happens on steroids. It becomes very important that you understand, are you with me or are you against me? Because there's a threat here. Sartre said that um, we were never so free as when the Nazis marched into Paris. Because when the Nazis marched into Paris, good and evil were, were clear, right? We're good, they're evil, there's no gray area here, you know. And there's something very, very freeing to that kind of simplicity, right? It, it, it feels, you know, stable and predictable then. Um, but so that tendency for that collapse is a, it's a natural process. But in these conflicts, what happens is all of these complicated factors get kind of wrapped into one, and they're seen in very simple terms. You know, you're evil, and we're victims of your insanity. And, and it's sim as simple as that. 
So there's a, the paradox. The paradox is oftentimes the more complex and the more threatening and the longer these things wear on, the simpler they are seen by those that, that live in the situation, right? It's, it becomes very simple to them. Um, so there is that kind of basic collapse of people's understanding into this oversimplified and kind of closed way of understanding and experiencing the conflict. And that's a fundamental thing that occurs across these situations, no matter how long they last. So that's how we understand that these high levels of complex conflicts um, at ver in very simple ways, that they become collapsed and closed systems of understanding and behaving that perpetuate themselves. Mm -hmm. So what's one instance in which you've, now the question seems a little ridiculous, but uh, <laughs> what's one instance in which you've solved a seemingly intractable conflict with these new methods described in the book? Sure. Or one if not solved, then approach to conflict yeah. and put it maybe in a more uh, functional setting. Sure. Well, there's, um, I, I take no credit for this, but there is a, a, a fascinating case that I talk about in the book, um, which is about the pro-life, pro-choice um, divide in this country. And um, it, it, the, the specifics of the case took place in Boston in the 1990s. And this is a time when the rhetoric around pro-life, pro-choice in this country was, was very intense, was very um, incendiary and volatile. Um, and particularly in the fairly Catholic community of Boston. Um, and so there was a lot of tension and polarization around that issue or those issues at that time. And then in 1994, a man named John Selville III um, drove into Brookline, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston, and he took a rifle and went to two women's clini clinics and shot dead two women and injured several others. Um, he took a rifle and put it at a, at, a, at a receptionist's head, and he said to her, you should pray the rosary, and then he killed her point blank. And that violence was a rupture. That violence was shameful to the pro-life community, was traumatizing to the pro-choice community, and it really sort of stopped the system. And the archdiocese came in and really you know, requested uh, dialogue, and the governor's office came in and said, you know, something has to change here. And so there was a lot of um, anxiety around this kind of um, direct violence that had occurred. And so as a result of that, this kind of fascinating thing happened. Three uh, pro-life leaders, women, and three pro-choice leaders in the community who are also women, um, who of course um, uh, despised each other, were fearful of each other, and, um, and had for you know a long time had basically fought each other on the battle lines of abortion. Um, they agreed to meet once secretly um, to s have a conversation. And they were both very hesitant to do this because A, they were afraid of violence. B, they really believed the other was tainted and that just being with them would be, you know, would affect them. C, they were afraid of their reputation within their community. There were many reasons not to get together. But they agreed to meet once and they came together under the uh, facilitation of a group called the Public Conversations Project and a woman named Laura Chasen in Boston. And they spoke for, um, for a, a time together. And then they agreed to have one more conversation. And so they came back again. And they then agreed to have another conversation. And they spoke in secret in dialogue for six years. <laughs> they met over six years. And again, this was very... Um, 
clandestine because of the, the obvious concerns. And then in 2001, they came public, and they published jointly published a piece in the Boston Globe called Talking with the Enemy, where they described their experience of these six years of trying to come to terms and have conversations around these issues. And this is what's fascinating. After six years of dialogue, what happened is they became more respectful of each other. They understood each other as honorable, caring women who were leaders who really cared about women and cared about women's issues. So they became much closer and their relationships became much more important with each other. I mean, literally, they, the, the pro-life group had met at a friendlies before the first meeting and prayed to God because they were afraid that they, would, that they were uh, jeopardizing their faith by sitting down with these killers, right? But about at the end of the sixth year, their relationships had transformed profoundly, and their attitudes on abortion became farther apart. <laughs> right? so, so you had the relationships between these women become thicker and richer and more nuanced, and yet they're, because they agreed not to use rhetoric and hyperbole and really speak very personally about why this was important to them, and because they started to care so much for the other women, they really wanted them to understand. And so in that process, their understanding of the issue became more polarized. What that means is that there isn't or wasn't for this process a quote-unquote solution to the abortion divide. Um, but they did change the dynamics of the relationship in a way that it was no longer a destructive process. They came public and, and talked about the respect for the other side. They changed the rhetoric and they, because uh, to some degree they had recognized that what they had contributed to were hostile conditions that uh, you know, perhaps encouraged the violence that happened to happen, right? So they took some responsibility. So as leaders, they changed their track and they came out publicly and it really affected the, the, dial, the, the type of dialogue and discourse around abortion in Boston. And I would suggest maybe even um, across the country because since that time we haven't seen the same type of violence that we had seen by John Salvo. So again, the irony there is pe the people still differed even more fundamentally on the issue, but the conflict, the violence, the destructiveness, the the assumption that the others were tainted killer, you know, evil killers went away, right? They recognized that they were human beings, they differed on this issue, but they could still respect and tolerate each other despite their differences on that issue. That is a constructive process that doesn't resolve the issue of abortion, but it does remove it from a more contentious, um, vilifying, destructive process. So how were you involved in that process? Were you at all? Not at all. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not at all. No, it's just I mean, I, I, I have met Laura Chase, and I've worked with her. I'm familiar with this. I happened to be in Boston the day that that was published um, and became very interested in that case because I think it is an excellent representation of, A, how these things um, can unfold, and B, how they can be ruptured. So this particular incident was ruptured by this violence um, but the change that took place with these women and ultimately with the community didn't really take place for several years. It took six years of safe dialogue by these leaders before the climate in the community sufficiently shifted. So it is an excellent illustration of those kinds of changes. 
Um, we have worked and, and do work in different types of situations. We have projects in the Middle East. We have, I have two students going to Burma this summer to apply some of these ideas to look at what are the probabilities of more constructive dynamics unfolding in Myanmar, Burma as that country moves forward, uh, you know, um, due to a lot of the recent political changes there. Um, so we work in different types of settings. I work uh, with labor disputes that become violent and contentious and try to unpack those and introduce nuance. So there are, um, you know, illustrations in the book and elsewhere of cases where these ideas have been particularly helpful. But the uh, abortion divide case, to me, is one of the most vivid um, uh, and illustrative of the kinds of dynamics we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, so you've approached this topic um, of conflict largely through you know, your field as a psychologist. Uh, but one of the, um, one of the biggest new uh, things yeah. in this field of peace and conflict studies is your advanced consortium on conflict yep. cooperation and complexity. And so that's a big, uh, and you spoke a bit about it earlier, um, a new multidisciplinary approach yeah. to, to the topic and to the idea of conflict. How has, um, your field and research contributed to the, to the approach of conflict conflict and how have, others change the game. There's even, I think, um, in some of the, you referenced at one point that there's an astrophysicist who did some <laughs> of the work that yeah, uh, yeah. contributed to the research in the 5% in your book. Yes, Larry so, Leibovitz, yeah. Yeah, so could you explain some of that? Sure, yeah. So uh, um, in terms of our work, I had initially became frustrated with the purely psychological theories and models to understand these kinds of phenomena because obviously they were more complex than just the psychology. Um, and so um, I started to, as I said, understand all these different kinds of elements and really think about them as systems. But I was, to be honest with you, um, disappointed or, or, or disillusioned by how systems thinking had been applied in our field because it had been applied for decades, but mostly as a metaphor. You know, things are complicated and they're different things are connected. And so, you know, and it really left us with a with in, in a place of, okay, so situations are complicated and so there's not much we can do, <laughs> right? Yeah. So there were useful models but they weren't, uh, and concepts, but they weren't um, allowing us to do sort of good empirical testing and to, 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 to understand the essence in any way and then to test them empirically. So I, I ran into a group, um, Robin Valiker and Andrzej Novak, who are social, who one is, uh, Novak is a complexity scientist, um, Polish, and he also is a social psychologist. And they were bringing very sophisticated methods coming out of physics um, uh, and complexity science, which is applied mathematics, to the study of social phenomena. And they were studying things like how, how people's sense of themselves emerge out of a complex set of interactions or, or how change, political change will happen in a country based on a lot of different factors, but uh, basically will stabilize into different patterns. So they were developing this thing called dynamical social psychology, which is, again, applying physics to that. And so I met them, and we together convened a group uh, and got funded by the uh, James McDonald Foundation to, by the way, Mc, the McDon James Mc S. McDonald Foundation funds sort of odd but promising ideas, right? So people who are not quite ready for NSF 
because their ideas are a little bit out there, but they're promising. And so they funded us for about four years. It's encouraging. Yes, it, is, it was. Uh, and um, what we did is convene this group. Larry Leibovich is an astrophysicist. Andrea Bartoli is a peacemaker and an anthropologist. Lanbury Rysenska is a Pole, a social scientist. Naira Musalm, a Palestinian student of mine, was involved. Katarina Kugler, a German student of mine. And we all together worked on this model of conceptualizing from a complexity science perspective intractable conflict. And one of the things it taught me is, again, that it, these are complex problems. They really require multidisciplinary um, perspectives, different types of ideas and, and perspectives to understand them. But you also need to, to somehow develop or, or f identify a shared language because the language of mathematicians very different from the language of anthropologists who are in the bush, right? And so somehow you have to find a way of talking to each other about the same thing. And what we found is that complexity science really provides that kind of platform. If you think about a system, you can understand that system as a cultural phenomenon as an anthropologist. You can understand it mathematically. You can understand it psychologically. So all of those things contributed um, to us coming together as a team and, and, and thinking about and discussing these things. Um, AC4, this Advanced Consortium on Conflict Cooperation and Complexity that you mentioned, is related because it is an um, initiative out of the Earth Institute that Beth Fisher Yoshida, who is the director, faculty director of uh, negotiation program here and myself co-chair, and it's funded by the university. And what they've come to recognize, um, which is very consistent with how the Earth Institute addresses a lot of its sort of global problems, is that you need to, A, bring people together from different disciplines to study complex problems like peace and conflict. And yet, because of how many of us are trained in a discipline, we tend to be very siloed. You know, psychologists work and publish in psychological journals, political scientists in a different world, and, and rarely the two should meet. So what we've been doing at, at Columbia is, tr is, is trying to build an infrastructure where, A, people just begin to recognize who else is doing interesting work here. We found that there's people studying peace and conflict in journalism at the School of Public Health, School of International and Public Affairs, social work, union theological, you name it. You know, there are people across this university who are doing fascinating things, studying conflict, but rarely do we get a chance to talk to each other, learn what each other is doing. So we created AC4 as, a, as an attempt to really grow and develop a hub of, of communication and identification so that, first of all, we just recognize who's here. We're about to launch a thing called AC4 Link, which is um, a database of currently it has I think 178 different faculty from around the university and I think about 50 different centers or institutes that are relevant to the study of peace and conflict. And so, it's a, so you can go if you're interested and say, well, I'm interested in you know, human rights violations or I'm interested in trauma and conflict or something like that and search, well, who else is, is working in this area and find the sort of, you know, the, the palette of different approaches to the understanding of that problem that took place just at Columbia University. So AC4 is, is our attempt to build an infrastructure. They, it, they, the university provides us with enough um, support to provide some funding to incentivize cross-disciplinary work. So we'll say to faculty, all right, so we'll give you X amount of dollars if you reach across the divides and bring together three or four people to study whatever you want to study. It might be 
conflict in the extraction industries and diamond minings and you know blood diamonds and how corporations contribute to that. Great, but to take it from not just a business perspective but also political perspective, psychological perspective, bring together different disciplines to understand that phenomenon and will help fund that research. Um, so it's, it is an attempt to recognize the need for multidisciplinary work on these things, to recognize that it's difficult to do and it's, it's not incentivized in academia, but it is critical to really addressing or identifying useful practical solutions. So that's what AC4 is um, moving toward. It's only been around, I think AC4 is in its fourth year, um, but it's grown and, and it's becoming more and more recognized and utilized by the faculty and the community uh, at Columbia. All right, great. Thanks, uh, thanks for talking with us, Professor. My pleasure. Thank you.